Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. I wanted to close out the season with something I read recently that just really knocked me out. It's by one of my favorite authors, Kurt Vonnegut. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about where he was in his life when he wrote this story. Vonnegut served in the Army during World War II. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and he was taken as a prisoner of war. And when he was finally able to return home, he got married, had a baby, and eventually he took a job with General Electric as a technical writer and later as a publicist. He actually started writing fiction while he was there, and eventually he was able to leave GE and write full-time. The story that I'm reading today, DP, appears in his collection Welcome to the Monkey House, and the audiobook is available from Harper Audio. DP is a story from early in Vonnegut's writing career, and it's one of many stories he wrote that touch on the after-effects of war. DP stands for Displaced Persons, a term for people who have been forced to flee their homes, in particular as a result of war. The story is set in a small town in Germany, in the American zone of occupation, where a group of nuns run an orphanage for displaced children. One of those children stands out from the others. They call him Joe Lewis, and if you're a little too young to know that reference, Joe Lewis was a black man who was one of the greatest boxers of all time, and in his time, he was one of the most famous men on the planet, which at the time, you might imagine, was some feat for a black man. Now, I want you to remember that this story was written 70 years ago, so it does have some language of that time. I really can't wait to read this one to you. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Begin. D.P. by Kurt Vonnegut. Eighty one. Small sparks of human life were kept in an orphanage, set up by Catholic nuns, in what had been the gamekeeper's house on a large estate overlooking the Rhine. This was in the German village of Karlswald, in the American zone of occupation. Had the children not been kept there, not been given the warmth and food and clothes that could be begged for them, they might have wandered off the edges of the earth, 
searching for parents who had long ago stopped searching for them. Every mild afternoon, the nuns marched the children, two by two, through the woods, into the village and back for their ration of fresh air. The village carpenter, an old man who was given to thoughtful rests between strokes of his tools, always came out of his shop to watch the bobbing, chattering, cheerful, ragged parade, and to speculate with idlers his shop attracted as to the nationalities of the passing children's parents. See the little French girl, he said one afternoon. Look at the flash of those eyes. And look at that little Paul swing his arms. They love to march, the Poles, said a young mechanic. Paul, where do you see any Paul, said the carpenter. There, the thin, sober-looking one, in front, the other replied. Ah, he's too tall for a pole, said the carpenter. And what pole has flaxen hair like that? He's a German. The mechanic shrugged. They're all German now, so what difference does it make, he said. Who can prove what their parents were? If you had fought in Poland, you would know he was a very common type. Look! Look who's coming now, said the carpenter, grinning. Full of arguments, as you are, you won't argue with me about him. There we have an American. He called out to the child. Joe, when you going to win the championship back? Joe, called the mechanic, how is the brown bomber today? At the very end of the parade, a lone, blue-eyed, colored boy, six years old, turned and smiled with sweet uneasiness at those who called out to him every day. He nodded politely, murmuring a greeting in German, the only language he knew. His name? chosen arbitrarily by the nuns, was Karl Heinz. But the carpenter had given him a name that stuck, the name of the only colored man who had ever made an impression on the villagers' minds, the former heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Lewis. Joe, called the carpenter. Cheer up! Let's see those white teeth sparkle, Joe. Joe obliged shyly. The carpenter clapped the mechanic on the back. And if he isn't a German, too, maybe it's the only way we can get another heavyweight champion. Joe turned a corner, shooed out of the carpenter's sight by a nun ringing up the rear. She and Joe spent a great deal of time together, since Joe, no matter where he was placed in the parade, always drifted to the end. Joe, she said, you are such a dreamer. Are all your people such dreamers? I'm sorry, sister, said Joe. I was thinking, dreaming. Sister, am I the son of an American soldier? 
Who told you that? Peter? Peter said my mother was a German and my father was an American soldier who went away. He said she left me with you and then went away too. There was no sadness in his voice, only puzzlement. Peter was the oldest boy in the orphanage, an embittered old man of 14, a German boy who could remember his parents and brothers and sisters and home and the war and all sorts of food that Joe found impossible to imagine. Peter seemed superhuman to Joe, like a man who had been to heaven and hell and back many times and knew exactly why they were where they were, how they had come there, and where they might have been. You mustn't worry about it, Joe, said the nun. No one knows who your mother and father were. But they must have been very good people because you are so good. What is an American? said Joe. It's a person from another country. Near here? There are some near here, but their homes are far, far away, across a great deal of water. Like the river. More water than that, Joe. More water than you have ever seen. You can't even see the other side. You could get on a boat and go for days and days and still not get to the other side. I'll show you a map sometime. But don't pay any attention to Peter, Joe. He makes things up. He doesn't really know anything about you. Now catch up. Joe hurried and overtook the end of the line where he marched purposefully and alertly for a few minutes. But then he began to dawdle again, chasing ghost-like words in his small mind. Soldier. German. American. Your people. Champion. Brown bomber. More water than you've ever seen. Sister, said Joe, are Americans like me? Are they brown? Some are. Some aren't, Joe. Are, are there many people like me? Yes, many, many people. Why haven't I seen them? None of them have come to the village. They have places of their own. I want to go there. Aren't you happy here, Joe? Yes, but Peter says I don't belong here. That I'm not a German and never can be. Peter, pay no attention to him. Why do people smile when they see me and try to make me sing and talk and then laugh when I do? Joe, Joe, look quickly, said the nun. See up there in the tree? See the little sparrow with the broken leg? 
Oh, poor brave little thing. He still gets around quite well. See him, Joe? Hop, hop, hippity hop. One hot summer day, as the parade passed the carpenter's shop, the carpenter came out to call something new to Joe, something that thrilled and terrified him. Joe! Hey, Joe! Your father is in town. Have you seen him yet? No, sir. No, I haven't, said Joe. Where is he? He's teasing, said the nun sharply. You see if I'm teasing, Joe, said the carpenter. Just keep your eyes open when you go past the school. You have to look sharp up the slope into the woods. You'll see, Joe. I wonder where our little friend the sparrow is today, said the nun brightly. Goodness, I hope his leg is getting better. Don't you, Joe? Yes, Yes, I do, sister. She chattered on about the sparrow and the clouds and the flowers as they approached the school, and Joe gave up answering her. The woods above the school seemed still and empty. But then Joe saw a massive brown man, naked to the waist and wearing a pistol, stepped from the trees. The man drank from a canteen, wiped his lips with the back of his hand, grinned down on the world with handsome disdain, and disappeared again into the twilight of the woods. Sister, gasped Joe. My father. I just saw my father. No, Joe. No, you didn't. He's up there in the woods. I saw him. I want to go up there, sister. He isn't your father, Joe. He doesn't know you. He doesn't want to see you. He's one of my people, sister. You can't go up there, Joe. And you can't stay here. She took him by the arm to make him move. Joe, you're being a bad boy, Joe. Joe obeyed numbly. He didn't speak again for the remainder of the walk, which brought them home by another route, far from the school. No one else had seen his wonderful father or believed that Joe had. Not until prayers that night did he burst into tears. At ten o'clock, the young nun found his cot empty. Now, let's get back to our story. Under a great spread net that was laced with rags, an artillery piece squatted in the woods. Black and oily, its muzzle thrust at the night sky. Trucks and the rest of the battery were hidden higher on the slope. 
Joe watched and listened tremblingly through a thin screen of shrubs as the soldiers, indistinct in the darkness, dug in around their gun. The words he overheard made no sense to him. Sergeant, why we gotta dig in when we're moving out in the morning? And it's just maneuvers anyhow. Seems like we could kind of conserve our strength and just scratch around a little bit to show where we'd have dug if there was any sense to it. For all you know, boy, there may be some sense to it before morning, said the sergeant. You got ten minutes to get to China and bring me back a pigtail. Here. The sergeant stepped into a patch of moonlight, his hands on his hips, his big shoulders back, the image of an emperor. Joe saw that it was the same man he'd marveled at in the afternoon. The sergeant listened with satisfaction to the sounds of digging, and then, to Joe's alarm, strode toward Joe's hiding place. Joe didn't move a muscle until the big boot struck his side. Ah, who's that? The sergeant snatched Joe from the ground and set him on his feet, hard. (laughs) My golly, boy, what you doing here? Scoot, go on home. This ain't no place for kids to be playing. He shined a flashlight in Joe's face. Doggone, he muttered. Where you come from? He held Joe at arm's length and shook him gently like a rag doll. Boy, how you get here? Swim? Joe stammered in German that he was looking for his father. Come on, how you get here? What you doing? Where's your mammy? What you got there, Sergeant? Said a voice in the dark. Don't rightly know what to call it, said the Sergeant. Talks like a kraut, dresses like a kraut. Just look at it a minute. Soon. A dozen men stood in a circle around Joe, talking loudly, then softly to him, as though they thought getting through to him were a question of tone. Every time Joe tried to explain his mission, they laughed in amazement. How he learned German? Tell me that. Where your daddy, boy? Where your mammy, boy? Spreckensy Dutch, boy? (laughs) Look there. See him nod? He talks it all right. Oh, you're fluent, man. Mighty fluent. Ask him some more. Go get the lieutenant, said the sergeant. He can talk to this boy and understand what he's trying to say. Look at him shake. Scared to death. Come here, boy. Don't be afraid now. He enclosed Joe in his great arms. Just take it easy now. Everything's going to be all right. You see what I got? (laughs) By golly, I don't believe the boy's ever seen chocolate before. Go on. Taste it. Won't hurt you. Joe, safe in a fort of bone and sinew, ringed by luminous eyes, bit into the chocolate bar. 
the pink lining of his mouth, and then his whole soul was flooded with warm, rich pleasure. And he beamed. He smiled. Look at him light up. Well, doggone if he didn't stumble right into heaven. Not mean. Talk about displaced persons, said the sergeant, hugging Joe. This here's the most displaced little old person I ever saw. Upside down and inside out and every which way. Here, boy. Here's some more chocolate. Don't give him no more, said the sergeant reproachfully. You want to make him sick? Nah, Sarge. Nah, I don't want to make him sick, no, sir. What's going on here? The lieutenant, a small, elegant Negro, the beam of his flashlight dancing before him, approached the group. Got a little boy here, lieutenant, said the sergeant. He just wandered into the battery. Must have crawled past the guards. Well... Send him on home, Sergeant. Uh, Yes, sir. I I plan to. He cleared his throat. throat) But this ain't no ordinary little boy, Lieutenant. He opened his arms so that the light fell on Joe's face. The Lieutenant laughed incredulously and knelt before Joe. (laughs) How'd you get here? All he talks is German, Lieutenant said the sergeant. Where's your home? said the lieutenant in German. Over more water than you've ever seen, said Joe. Where do you come from? God made me, said Joe. This boy's going to be a lawyer when he grows up, said the lieutenant in English. Now, listen to me, he said to Joe. What's your name? And where are your people? Joe, Lewis, said Joe. And you are my people. I ran away from the orphanage because I belong with you. The lieutenant stood, shaking his head, and translated what Joe had said. The woods echoed with glee. Joe Lewis. I thought he was awful big and powerful looking. Just keep away from that left, that's all. If he's Joe... He sure found his people. He's got us there. Shut up, commanded the sergeant suddenly. All of you, just shut up. This ain't no joke. Ain't nothing funny, in it? Boy's all alone in the world. Ain't no joke. A small voice finally broke the solemn silence that followed. Nah, ain't no joke at all. We better take the jeep and run him back into town, Sergeant, said the lieutenant. Purple Jackson, you're in charge. You tell him Joe was a good boy, said Jackson. Now, Joe, you come with the sergeant and me. We'll take you home. Joe dug his fingers into the sergeant's forearms. Papa, no, Papa, I want to stay with you. Look, Sonny, I ain't your papa, said the sergeant helplessly. I ain't your papa. Papa! Man, he's glued to you, ain't he, sergeant, said a soldier. Looks like you ain't never gonna pry him loose. 
You got yourself a boy there, Sarge. And he's got himself a papa. The sergeant walked over to the jeep with Joe in his arms. Come on now, he said. You let go, little Joe, so's I can drive. I can't drive with you hanging on, Joe. You sit in the lieutenant's lap, right next to me. The group formed again around the jeep, gravely now, watching the sergeant try to coax Joe into letting go. I don't want to get tough, Joe. Come on. Take it easy, Joe. Let go now, Joe, so's I can drive. See, I can't steer a nothing with you hanging on right there. Papa. Come on. Over to my lap, Joe, said the lieutenant in German. Papa. Joe. Joe, look, said a soldier. Chocolate. Want some more chocolate, Joe? See? A whole bar, Joe. All yours. Just let go of the sergeant and move over into the lieutenant's lap. Joe tightened his grip on the sergeant. Don't put the chocolate back in your pocket, man. Give it to Joe anyways, said a soldier angrily. Somebody go get a case of D-bars off the truck and throw them in the back for Joe. Give that boy chocolate enough for the next 20 years. Look, Joe, said another soldier. Ever see a wristwatch? Look at the wristwatch, Joe. See it glow, boy? Move over in the lieutenant's lap and let you listen to it tick. Tick, 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 Joe. Come on. Want to listen? Joe didn't move. The soldier handed the watch to him. Here, Joe. You take it anyway. It's yours. He walked away quickly. Man! Somebody called after him. You crazy? You paid $50 for that watch. What business a little boy got with any $50 watch? No, I ain't crazy. Are you? Nah, I ain't crazy. Neither one of us crazy, I guess. Joe, want a knife? You got to promise to be careful with it now... Always cut away from yourself, here, Lieutenant, when you get back, you tell him always cut away from himself. I don't want to go back. I want to stay with Papa, said Joe tearfully. Soldiers can't take little boys with them, Joe. And we're leaving early in the morning. Will you come back for me, said Joe. We'll come back if we can, Joe. Soldiers never know where they'll be from one day to the next. We'll come back for a visit, if we can. Can we uh, give old Joe this case of D-bars, Lieutenant? Said a soldier carrying a cardboard carton of chocolate bars. Don't ask me, said the Lieutenant. I don't know anything about it. I never saw anything of any case of D-bars, never heard anything about it. Yes, sir. The soldier laid his burden down on the jeep's back seat. He ain't gonna let go, said the sergeant miserably. You drive, lieutenant. Me and Joel sit over there. The lieutenant 
and the sergeant changed places, and the jeep began to move. Bye, Joe. You be a good boy, Joe. Don't you eat all that chocolate at once, you hear? Don't cry, Joe. Give us a smile. Wider, boy. That's the stuff. Let's get back to our story. Joe? Joe? Wake up, Joe. The voice was that of Peter, the oldest boy in the orphanage, and it echoed damply from the stone walls. Joe sat up, startled. All around his cot were the other orphans, jostling one another for a glimpse of Joe and the treasures by his pillow. Where did you get the hat, Joe? And the watch? A knife, said Peter. And what's in the box under your bed? Joe felt his head and found a soldier's wool-knit cap there. Papa, he mumbled sleepily. Papa, mocked Peter, laughing. Yes, said Joe. Last night, I went to see my papa, Peter. Could he speak German, Joe? said a little girl, wonderingly. No, but his friend could. He didn't see his father, said Peter. Your father is far, far away and will never come back. He probably doesn't even know you're alive. What did he look like? said the girl. Joe glanced thoughtfully around the room. Papa is as high as this ceiling, he said at last. He is wider than that door. Triumphantly, he took a bar of chocolate from under his pillow. And as brown as that. He held out the bar to the others. Go on. Have some. There is plenty more. He doesn't look anything like that, said Peter. You aren't telling the truth, Joe. My papa has a pistol as big as this bed, almost, Peter, said Joe happily. And a cannon as big as this house. And there were hundreds and hundreds like him. Somebody played a joke on you, Joe, said Peter. He wasn't your father. How do you know he wasn't fooling you? Because he cried when he left me, said Joe simply. And he promised to take me back home across the water as fast as he could. He smiled airily. Not like the river, Peter. Across more water than you've ever seen. He promised. And then I let him go.
it is a rare treat when you get to read Vonnegut. For me, the story is is about the sense of wanting to find where you belong. And that, my friends, is a yearning that I believe we all have in common. And so because, you know, I, I was born in Germany and I spent some time there as a child, uh, I feel a deep kinship to Joe. Um, not because I was an orphan, but, you know, I certainly have a lot of experiences with nuns, <laughs> having been educated in Catholic schools and studied for the priesthood for a minute. But that sense of where do I belong? Where are, who are my people? Where can I go that I will be embraced and loved and nurtured? Where is it that I'm safe in this world? These are all questions I believe that we share in common. The sense that we are not alone on this journey is really important to me. I see all the time, I don't believe it is possible. In fact, it's certainly not possible to do this thing called life by ourselves. We all have and need help at various times in our lives. Recently, I was, um, <laughs> seems a little weird still to say it, but I was awarded by the Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences the first inaugural Lifetime Achievement Award for the, the new Emmys ceremony uh, celebrating children's and family programming. And as, mu as much as I um, protest because I believe that I am nowhere close to being done with my storytelling, it has been an opportunity to reflect and to look back and to remind myself of just how much help I have had in my life that brings me to this particular moment. And the thing that I know more than anything else, it is the love of my family. They did everything necessary in order to help me nurture my dream. And I guess that's what I wish for all of you. Um, someone or someones in your life who see you, who are making an investment in you simply because you are you. And that's the thing I try and remember, especially on dark days. We need to do nothing else in order to be worthy of being loved. The simple act of being is all we need to bring to the party.
Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the one and only Julia Smith. She is the best in the business, y'all. Our fabulous researcher is Lakeisha Lewis. Editing and sound design by the extraordinary Brendan Burns. And thank you to Tamika Weatherspoon for her invaluable research and production support. My thanks today to Harper Audio for allowing me to read this story. You can find it in the audiobook version of Welcome to the Monkey House by the amazing Kurt Vonnegut. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. Pick your favorite story and send it to them. You can hear episodes ad-free if you like and also listen to exclusive bonus author interviews on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. LeVarBurton.com is my corner of the internet and you can join my book club at fable.co slash LeVar. I'll see you all next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. 